Clap for that, you stupid bastard. Who's gonna win it? The Celtics! I'll kidnap a thousand children before I let this company die! Wow! Yeah, I thought it was funny. 1-800-CALL-JOE The Playing Catch-Up Podcast Please clap. Welcome to Playing Catch-Up. I'm Brian Foisey. And I am Everett Beals. And we'll be discussing this week's top stories. A verdict reached in the trial of Derek Chauvin, the officer responsible for killing George Floyd last June. The U.S. State Department quietly working on a deal with the Taliban to prop up democracy in Afghanistan. A preview of the Academy Awards and the failed European Super League. And in our main segment, we'll deal with the climate crisis, President Biden's lofty goals for emissions, and the ongoing summit of global leaders. But here's our first top story. Everett, you take it away. That's right. So Derek Chauvin, the former Minneapolis police officer who killed George Floyd by kneeling on his neck for nine minutes and 29 seconds, has been found guilty on all charges in Minnesota District Court. The case was argued for nearly a month, and after two, year, two days of deliberation on April 20, 2021, the jury found that Mr. Chauvin was guilty of unintentional second-degree murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter. Judicial sentencing for Mr. Chauvin is set to take place eight weeks from now, with the charges potentially accumulating to over 40 years in prison. Now, obviously, um, this story is great news for anyone who um, believes in justice in the American uh, justice system, but also it's an incredibly rare thing that has happened. Um, Not too often do you find police officers uh, held legally responsible for um, uh, murdering um, people in the line of duty. Um, And I think uh, one of the saddest things that's come out of this and one of the saddest things about our you know, current uh, political and media climate is that this issue has almost immediately been culture ward. Um, it's not necessarily, you know, a, a thing where we can all say, all right, this is, you know, justice taking place. This is how, um, you know, the court has ruled in this situation. It's automatically becomes a right versus left issue. Um, and you saw that in two uh, distinct events this week. Um, first, in Greg Gutfeld's Fox News outburst where, um, you know, he was sort of saying, I don't know if you saw the clip, Everett, but Greg Gutfeld was sort of going off about um, the George Floyd case, and um, he was, um, you know, s- sort of saying, all right, I don't really care about this verdict as long as there's no more looting in my city. Um, he's like, I'd rather that we just have uh, this um, guilty verdict so that there's no more looting. And, you know, he stood on this high horse and stood on the soapbox talking about how you know, he was so bad because his neighborhood um, got looted during the um, the, the riots last um, summer. Um, right. And <laughs> Judge Jean Pirro, who um, I think, am I saying that right? Is it Janine Pirro? I'm not exactly sure. Oh, it's Judge Janine. Yeah, Judge Janine Pirro was um, sort of defending the, uh, <laughs> you know, justice system, um, saying that we have to accept this verdict. Um Everett, did you have you seen this clip? I've not seen the clip, but I can imagine what she would be uh, saying. I suppose. Um, yeah, it's it's sort of strange that Fox News allows these sorts of. Um, well, I guess it's not strange, but um, it goes to show that even you know, our institutions of law um, cannot be in in the eyes of Fox News and its commentators. Um, even those things can't be trusted today. Um, Right, and it kind of, it's kind of a very, I don't know, it strikes me as slightly hypocritical because 
especially during the protests last summer, and then when some of those turned into riots. The, the call from the right, and especially from Fox News, which is becoming increasingly reliant for what I assume is a, a ratings boost attempt on their hosts uh, just having hour-long segments or, or longer, just because having news anchors there just isn't as effective. Um, but the 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 um, the dialogue coming from conservative media and then also from the White House at the time was that this is terrible. The law is mu- the rule of law is much more important yeah. and must win out the day every time. Um, and now we have the judicial system working how it's actually intended. We have justice uh, for one one person, one family in a sea of injustice. Um, and now the issue has been turned around by the same media who before hailed, hailed justice and law before all else. Yeah. Um, which is quite strange. When it, when it supports their argument and when it, you know, confirms their ideals or the way they want society to be constructed, um, then the justice system in our institutions is cool for them. Um, but when justice for me, not for thee. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, the conservative approach to, you know, the social systems that we have is, you know, a reverence for our institutions, you know, a belief in the Supreme Court, in the in the White House, in, you know, Congress, in the justice system. And um, and a and a faith in the infallibility of the U.S. Constitution. Yes. And that even that sort of thing has been uh, dissolved as of late. And I think that, you know, the more issues that we have like this, which should just be. Um, you know, we all saw a video of a man, um, getting murdered, um, in the streets just because of, you know, the suspicion of a, of a counterfeit, um, a dollar that he was trying to use to make a sale. Um, just because of that suspicion, he was killed. Um, and we all saw that video and even that can't be confirmation of something that we can't all see something and know that that was you know, a fact, um, and even now that there's been a, a ruling in court, we still can't um, all come together and recognize that justice, the justice system has, you know, made this decision. Um, it still, you know, depends right. on... Right, and unfortunately, I think it's it's fair to, to suspect that, at least for some, where it should be like, this is a very clear-cut, extremely forward... Travis tragedy that happened and if now as you said we have this legal ruling which since they put so much uh uh stock in such a thing well that should be definitive but it feels like just another opportunity where it's like well we need there needs to be another side so we can own the libs yeah um not because not to balance an argument wherein there are possibly more than one correct side but now where you look quite literally have a judicial a legal binary of a defendant who was guilty um even then there has to be a devil's advocate for just in the name of well the liberals are going too far um in using the justice system we love to the other side of the aisle um nancy pelosi gave uh, a very strange speech on the steps of the capitol um following um, this verdict, where she, in a way, thanked George Floyd, thanked George Floyd for dying, so that he could um, bring this justice. Um, 
it's very strange. It was a very strange take. Um, and I think it really shows uh, um, politicians the way they are today. And that, thank you for giving us this opportunity to, you know, have a political statement or to do something. Um, thank you for, you know, dying so that we could do this, so we could have this moment to um, right. virtue signal. I, yeah, <laughs> I feel, yeah. Nancy Pelosi is often the target, especially from the further left, of like you are stupid. The epitome of out of stu- out of touch democratic establishment. I feel like that's true for the majority of politicians, um, but her messaging especially was very Strange. confused and seemingly tone deaf. Um, it just came off very weird. You can kind of see even in the video the other people just there weren't really reacting to it the way you would expect a rousing but melancholic victory uh, uh, in air quotes speech to be i think it came from a good place right but um came out incredibly wrong came out quite strange and and wrong yeah um but obviously you know justice was has been served um, I think it's a good victory. It doesn't mean that the fight for racial justice is over. It doesn't mean that police brutality um, is over. <laughs> but I think it's a step in the right direction. Right. I feel like, yeah, more than anything, it feels like after a, a year or more of a lot of despair, and especially, like, even, right, the day of that trial, the decision being released, there was another police shooting in Chicago. Um, wasn't it? Oh, I'm sorry. It was in Ohio. Is that correct? Columbus, Not Ohio? Not entirely sure, but I don't know what you're talking about. I, I, I apologize for having it mixed up. I believe that day it was Columbus, Ohio. Um, a young girl was shot by another police officer. Um, but I think more than anything, and I believe the president was sort of saying that in his Actually, before a verdict was reached, he gave a speech, said he was hoping that the right verdict would be made. Um, And then afterwards, he was pleased and sort of echoed a lot of what what Brian just said and what a lot of other activists have been saying. It's like this is a step, a beginning. But uh, I think after like a year of, of sort of despair, feeling like nothing is happening or changing, this is at least like one little chip, which uh, feels like a a step towards an atmosphere which is more accountable where you know it's not always like another person dies uh media stirs it up for a week and then it's another it's just joins a list of names um where now it feels like maybe we can have a real change hopefully to where there's at least some accountability What's our next topic, Brian? As, as we all know, uh, President Biden has announced his intention to uh, withdraw all American troops from Afghanistan by 9-11-2021, obviously a symbolic meaning to that date. Um, however, um, I think we could all agree that the situation in Afghanistan has not improved since our arrival there, and um, you know some could argue it has no. worsened. Um, but a report in the New York Times and also some, you know, um, public statements by uh, Anthony Blinken indicated that, that the uh, White House is trying to um, construct some sort of peace um, with Afghanistan and with the Taliban. 
Um, so the U.S. Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, said the Taliban will have to moderate themselves and democratize the government in order to get international recognition. Um, it's sort of the similar claim to, um, or I find it similar to, you know, Bill Clinton's decision to open up trading with China during his presidency, believing that the American culture would, um, you know, soften a lot of the authoritarian aspects of the China, um, of the Chinese regime, which obviously at this point, you know, we can tell it has not. Um, I think they're doing a similar situation here where the um, White House needs to end this war. They have to get our troops out of here, but the job ha is not done. And um, so now they're just, you know, sort of saying, I think this will be good because they're going to have to um, not be such an authoritarian uh, Sharia law government um, to, you know, if they want international recognition. Um, is there evidence that they want international recognition, that they want to be part of the international community? Um, I don't think so. Uh, you know, people who are on the side of the White House argue that, yes, there have been some softening of um, hardline, you know, um, Islamic rhetoric. Um, but others say that this is just, you know, um, an attempt by uh, the White House to say, you know, we're done here. <laughs> this will be good. Um, uh, Anthony Blinken also announced that the Biden administration would commit $300 million in humanitarian aid to the Taliban in Afghanistan. So how did this, our, our longest war in American history, end up with us basically ceding control back to the enemy we've been fighting and also end up with us giving them $300 million in American taxpayer dollars to moderate their regime? I just don't, I don't understand how this could be a, a victory in any sense and I don't understand you know I understand the pickle that the White House is in right now they obviously can't um, you know they obviously can't keep troops in there longer they can't you know up troops in any way they can't uh, increase the operations that we have in Afghanistan but the job simply is not done the situation has not gotten any better um, you know we had a lot of land for a while we'd taken back control and now it seems that we're just sort of, you know, coexisting with the Taliban, which we, we came into Afghanistan to get them out of there. We believed that they were harboring terrorists. Um, and now we're just giving it back. We're just like, yeah, you can have the country back. Here's $300 million. Um, right. Everett, what's your take on this? Um, yeah, well, I don't intend to naively make a direct comparison to the end of the Vietnam War. Um but it's obviously similar. What did they call it? What did what did the military call it then? A, a withdrawal, a retreat with honor. Yeah. Withdrawal with honor, something. Um, it is difficult because because certainly the White House, as you were saying, is in an extremely difficult position. Mm -hmm. We understand that this war must end. We need to get our troops out of there. Needed to a, a long time ago. Um, but the question is. First, when this war was begun, what what was the intention um, and what responsibility now, if the war was started on false pretenses or there was no way of winning such a war, um, then what responsibility does a modern American government, three administrations later, have? Does it mean that we accept our blunder and attempt to finish a job? Or does it mean that we accept that it was wrong that our whatever infiltration and removal of terrorist cells was 
unsuccessful mostly. Um, but does leaving, as you said, mean that we are simply throwing the towel, uh, leaving the burden to the Afghanistan government? Um, or do we now have, even if it was not brought upon this administration, a responsibility to enforce whatever system our troops have been propping up? Um, I think this, personally, this, I think, as you said, the most right, the most important thing to me is just is just to end um, our engagement and get out. But I believe just from what Secretary of State Blinken has been saying, seems like the White House is trying to shift their their priorities to, well, maybe we can handle this situation in a diplomatic way. Maybe we can we can move from a mere NATO coalition force that is engaging in an attempt to actively go into battle and remove terrorists and instead be an ally and a peacekeeper where we can. Um, So I agree with at least that priority, that probably the best thing is to first just, obviously it's not an official war, but to end combat and then change our status. Um, And I think just now, it's such. It's been a very long time since two thousand one, but I feel like more of the public and more of government is starting to accept a withdrawal from our role as global peacekeeper, wherein we need we have this responsibility um, always, which often, especially during the two thousands, was just we need to go here firstly for regional stability and air quotes, and also for our economic interests and to help our allies, but really it was mostly a selfish endeavor. Um, and people on both sides of the aisle, I, I recall during the 2016 presidential election, actually, uh, then not yet President Trump was pretty clearly, he was going against, he was railing Jeb Bush for stuff his father did and his grandfather did. Um, so, so yeah, I think it's best to withdraw. Um, but we also have a responsibility with our allies. Um, and I think America doesn't need to be this intervening force anymore, especially since many of our former interests were merely economic. Um, and our role can be more just like back to the, the idealized version of beacon of democracy, helping where possible and not intervene because we want to. And I think this this situation we find ourselves in is the product of um, previous administrations kicking this down the road. Um, we opened up a can of worms in 2002 when we first arrived in Afghanistan, and then nobody was able to, uh, you know, close that can of worms, to use the analogy further. Um, so the situation just kept getting kicked down the road. Oh, somebody else will have to deal with this Um Somebody else will, you know, get us out of Afghanistan. And it's, you know, you made the comparison earlier to Vietnam, and I think it's an apt comparison in that the um, original intentions for arriving there um, were not necessarily, you know, the smartest intentions, wasn't necessarily the best intentions, and but then we were stuck there. We, you know, it became a, a military engagement that we had to find some situation to get out of. We define some way to get out of weather, um, and I think this is an identical right. situation in that the United States arrived in Afghanistan in 2002, and since then they've been trying to basically figure out a way to get out. 
and I think that now we're just sort of saying, all right, the situation is not ideal, but we have to end this war. And the part that I just can't get over is why are we offering, you know, these authoritarian countries, um, these dictatorships that do not um, align in any way with our national ideals, um, hundreds of millions of dollars in humanitarian aid to just basically... Right, I think I can answer just that. just basically buy um, their The compliance. most important thing... Right. When we talk about, like, development aid and USAID, uh, very important distinction being, first, where is the United... Where is that money coming from within the United States? Is that taxpayer money? Is it organizations, nonprofits, NGOs? And then also, where... To whom is that money going? Um, is it going to the Afghanistan government? Or is it going to... Um, local organizations in Afghanistan, or is it going to international NGOs, which will then distribute the funds and make investments in Afghanistan? Um, I don't know if you have the answer to that question, but to me, um, it makes an extreme difference. Uh, And really, it it makes a good deal of sense um, to say that, well, if we're going, that is the transition to the way that modern diplomacy works. If we say that, well, we're not going to provide the extremely loose structure that our troops and our NATO allies did since all of them are withdrawing. But instead, we pledge to um, send investment and, and infrastructure, uh, depending again on where it goes, um, to the people there because our commitment is to them and not to the changing fluctuating government of this country um so i mean that's the that's the difference to, to interrupt sort of to clarify what this humanitarian aid i'm reading now from the new york times it says on wednesday mr blinken announced that the administration would work with congress to expedite a commitment of 300 million dollars in humanitarian assistance for afghanistan pledged last fall under the trump administration so the general theme of this article is that the white house believes they can moderate the Taliban, who they just now assume are going to take over Afghanistan when they leave. They think they're going to be able to moderate them and get them on their side by giving them an air of legitimacy okay. um, and giving them humanitarian right. Also, aid. rather importantly, so does it say it's going to the Taliban, though? It doesn't say it's going to the Taliban, but the, the, the right. title... And also, not. rather importantly, it says that that aid was begun, or at least agreed upon, by the Trump administration... Um, so does that, does that mean even that this is a new deal? What was the Trump administration planning on withdrawing or is this just regular annual U.S. aid that goes to Afghanistan, um, that now the Biden administration is expediting? Well, I think that the, that you're right, that this was already a planned thing that they were going to send. Um, but the the new strategy of the State Department right now, it seems to be, is an acceptance of the idea that the Taliban, the enemy which we've been fighting since 2002 for, you know, 19 years, almost a decade, um, almost two decades now, the, the enemy that we've been, we've been fighting are going to take control once we leave. We've basically conceded that fact. And now they are trying to curry favor with the Taliban and to get them, in a sense, in our pocket by, you know, giving them an air of legitimacy and directing a certain amount of aid 
and I'm not entirely sure where this aid is being allocated, but the Secretary of State and the State Department believe that they can control the Taliban and moderate the Taliban by giving them a certain amount of aid. And I don't know, I'm not right. entirely sure of the government system in Afghanistan right now. I'm pretty sure we have sort of a puppet government of sorts that has been installed that is, you know, close to American ideals. And, you know, the the article's title was, um, if I get it out again, <laughs> the article's title was, as it loads, um, Biden officials place hope in Taliban's desire for legitimacy and money. So the Taliban, mm. I, I guess, want money and they want legitimacy and the United States can give them that if they choose to moderate their government. Right. And I mean, just to make a comparison to Vietnam one more time before we end this segment, yeah. um, I think it's it's worth noting that in Vietnam, and I'm not quite so sure about conflict in Afghanistan, but these were wars which were entered to under like this false, pre false pretense of we need to uphold American-style democracy and our interests. Um, and clearly in Vietnam, the issue was an assumption that the people of South Vietnam enjoyed the system of democracy that they had. Um, and there was no introspection or consideration of what local culture and what people living there wanted. Now, I think there's a very clear difference between um, object what the international community believes reasonably to be an objectively anti-humanitarian style of government, yeah. which is just terrorist authoritarian rule, which means that beyond even cultural uh, differences, uh, it means just... Uh, people do not have the rights they would normally enjoy even under a, tra a traditional cultural government system. But in Vietnam, for example, when we left Vietnam, the North Vietnamese government um, succeeded and uh, most people there, just from a very basic understanding of history, weren't necessarily displeased. But the, they were just glad the, that conflict was over. The optics of the situation is we've been fighting a war for 19 years now, and we're done with the war, we haven't won the war, and we're cutting the enemy a check on the way out. It's like if in Vietnam, you know, we left Vietnam because we, we knew we weren't going to be able to win. We knew we weren't going to be able to push back the North Vietnamese forces. It's like we were, you know... As we're as, as the helicopters are leaving Hanoi, that we you know here's three hundred million dollars. Enjoy, you know. Please have a nice government when we're when we're gone. Um, I just think that the optics of the situation, above anything else, are um, disastrous. <laughs> you know, the the way people are gonna look at this yeah. is that we I mean have the optics are bad, but it I don't think it. Does it make the State Department, the United States government, look weak? Well, they're. they're I'm not sure. They're, they're it, it makes the pickle. decisions that it makes the decisions that the United States made 20 years ago look terrible. Um, and I, I just I don't think it's the same as just giving terrorists 300 million dollars. It's giving a government 
again, the, the distinction is quite clear, and I, and I don't think either of us are experts in any sense of the word yeah, yeah. Um, about the situation. But I don't believe that optics are the most important piece, especially since it's not – we are making the choice to leave because we understand it's not about us, right? And it's not about upholding certain ideals when what's more important is – what we can agree upon internationally as humanitarian ideals and what the people in that country actually want, which more than anything, if we can agree as a country is probably self-determination. Um, and that's, I really don't feel like I know enough to say anything more than that. So that's where I'll end my side. All right. I think we can end it there. I think, um, we've discussed this to a great length. Um, in, in lighter news, um, the Oscars, the Academy Awards, happen uh, this weekend. Um, there's a special um, situation happening with the Oscars this year. Obviously, the COVID-19 pandemic has not allowed Americans, the majority of Americans, to see these movies in the theaters. Um, and the comparison that I made, um, and you might find this to be dumb, but... <laughs> If an Oscars falls in the woods and nobody saw the movies and nobody watches the ceremony, then it actually happened. So that's reference to the fact that um, these movies this year are not especially popular. We don't necessarily have a, a Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or a Parasite this year or you know even right. anything that would happen 20 years ago, obviously. Um, engagement with this year's Best Picture nominees in the months leading up to the ceremony is two-thirds of what it was last year, according to uh, the Google, Google Trends um, site. And um, ratings for uh, the Oscars telecast, along with you know pretty much every live event, have been declining in years past. Um, so, Everett, what do you think about uh, the Academy Awards this year and um, the situation they find themselves in, where nobody's seen these movies and not many people will watch the ceremony? No, I think you make a fair point. Um, just because, like, when we uh, recorded our discussion about the Oscars, Oscar predictions, like, I, I knew very little because the theaters were closed and I, I didn't watch all of them. And part of that, I suppose, is obviously there's a pandemic, and part of it also is that there weren't that what do you call it, like a tentpole summer movie. I mean, there wasn't like a a huge thing. Like, which, first, I'd be interested in. And second, that was extremely popular. It did very well. Um, and though only one, which I watched on a streaming service and I kept falling back to on, as a crutch, was, was Godzilla. Um, so I don't know what that means for how the Oscars will be viewed and what the ratings will be and whether no, anyone will care about who gets an award. Um I feel like it still matters, but I wasn't planning on watching the Oscars anyway, unless you want to watch them, Brian. So, um, so yeah, I'm not sure. I imagine perhaps fewer people will watch it than last year, though. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I think that the Oscars um, find themselves in a pickle. Everyone's in a pickle this week, huh? Um, the, the, Everybody's in some serious pickles. We have some nuanced situations. The Oscars find themselves in a situation where um, the kind of movies they've been promoting over the years um, are movies that no one likes. 
you know? Um, the, you know, years ago we had that situation where the Oscars introduced a popular movie category. Do you remember this? I think it was like 2018 no. or 2017 or something. The Oscars were planning on um, creating, in tandem with the best picture, a popular movie category which would allow for MCU films or Star Wars or, I don't know, Fast and the Furious or something to win an award at the Oscars, um, which obviously they don't, you know, win ever um, because, you know, the Hollywood system, these movies are over here and they don't get awards. These movies are over here and they get awards. Um, but American, you know, sensibilities as they are, we've shifted towards the movies that don't get awards. Those dominate the culture. Um, so it's a sort of thing where the two sides are pulling away from each other that the, that the big, the big box office movies are not, you know, artistic in any ways. And the big, um, artistic movies are not necessarily, you know, um, appealing to successful a, to a commercial. Yes. Not successful in any right. commercial Right, and I sense. feel like there a few times, the two that you noted were both. Yeah. Um, I don't have the box office statistics for, like, Parasite or Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but I felt like those were very Or even, well like, A Star Is Born. received movies. Right. Those were very well received by critics and audiences alike and also did well in theaters. Yeah. Um, so it's possible for both to happen, mm -hmm. but as you're saying, and I think it's fair um that a lot of extremely popular media is in the eyes of the academy not necessarily high art um which might be fair um but it's also like who watches the oscars and who cares if it's art mm. people who like movies a lot probably mm. um so it's kind of like what audience do they want to cater yeah. to and i feel like just based on how it works um they'd probably be more interested in leaning into the I don't know, people like Brian. Well, there's um, a certain thing where people like Brian and, you know, people who are very into movies are also not necessarily pleased with the crop of movies that got nominated for Oscars. Um, an right. example of in recent years was Uncut Gems. This is a movie that was incredibly popular. I thought it was really good. You, I, I think you liked it Agreed. as well. Agreed. I did too. Um, but that movie did not get nominated for an Oscar. Um, neither did... And uh, another one which got snubbed, actually, which was also quite popular, was The Lighthouse. Um, yeah. No no nominations for Those that. Those things are, like, big among movie. film, Twitter, and that sort of thing. But um, there's a there seems to be three camps of movies. One that's, you know, popular, big MCU stuff. One that's popular on film, Twitter, The Lighthouse, Uncut Gems. Um, those sorts of things. And then in the middle, there's what gets nominated for Oscars. So if you're not catering to wide audiences by nominating um, movies that everyone has seen, and you're not catering to film Twitter um, with movies that you know people who are really obsessed with movies really enjoy, who are you marketing towards? You know, you're, right. you're casting a net. The old guard. Yeah, you're casting a net I to mean... people who aren't watching the Oscars anymore. Um, Right, and to give to give the Twitter what you labeled it a more maybe a more precise name. Cinephiles. Aren't those both A twenty four? Aren't those both A twenty four movies? I believe so. Um, yes. Right. I mean, that's like a as a production house. I feel like that's 
becoming increasingly popular movies, especially among younger people, just to generalize, mm-hmm. um, which don't necessarily receive extremely high critical acclaim, which but which do rather well in the box office and sort of enter the cultural zeitgeist in floating quotes yeah. of popular movies um, because extremely successful ones from A24, like which people still talk about very frequently, like The Witch or um, Midsommar, um, and then also movies which are slightly divisive, I guess, like... Um, like uh, the the example you just used, um, uncut gems, you know it, it's it's an audience which I feel like they should cater to because these are movies which are clearly more again in floating quotes the art house type of film, mm-hmm. where it's usually small indie producers and directors who are given a, a production opportunity by a twenty four and then come up with creative movies which do well and are received well by mostly younger people um there's no reason not to recognize that uh, especially since what we're going what i guess the academy's standards are are success and artistic value um, but isn't there some cinematic and artistic value that should be honored in a film like endgame or um you know in the case of the the emmys um for something like wandavision which you know obviously is a big franchise thing, but it also has a lot of artistic elements that I think people could appreciate. And it's also you know the MCU is something that has never existed in film before, in that it is this sort of series of um, movies that are all connected, and um, this web of stories that has been created over the years. And I think right, and yeah. it is art, right? But the the it seems like the dialogue to to boil it down to like one person has always been like Martin Scorsese representing movie world yeah. and Hollywood, and everybody else uh, using Marvel movies as of examples. Yeah. Um, and Martin Scorsese is like that's not art. And everyone else is like, sure it is, and I like it. Yeah, I'm not um, saying the Minions should win an award. I'm not saying that no. Fast and the Furious, when they send a, a, a car up into space, you know, that's cool. But <laughs> Godzilla vs. Kong should not win an Academy Award. But we should at least consider um, the cinematic and artistic merit of something like Avengers Endgame or um, something like, I don't know. Star Wars. Yeah, Star and maybe Wars it also means like that, obviously. But. Yeah, I mean, an Academy Award is it, it is in Hollywood. It is the end all be all. That is the thing that shows that you are the best. Yeah. But also, I mean, it does it show that maybe there's a shift in the culture to where an Oscar is cool, but I don't really care. Yeah. Um, and for all these other movies, I mean, there are tons of film festivals. And also the way that people enjoy movies with the advent of the internet um, is What's like, that? I can just, I, I don't need like an academy to tell me what I like. And there are plenty of other people who like it, which with whom I can connect cool. instantly. So, you know, so maybe it's a change in like authority figures but that's enough about the academy i think right brian yeah that's a, that's this is a this is a topic for a different time maybe next week we'll talk about this at greater length all right in our final headline of the week the european super league we're joined to talk about this by 
Should I give you, should I give him a senior title? <laughs> give him a senior <laughs> title. Our senior football correspondent William Schechter. Thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. Oh, you know, it's my pleasure honestly to come <laughs> here on this here podcast. Really, it's my honor. I don't know what I deserve or in what world I earned the title of being a, a an expert as I am just a fan, but I guess I do know a thing or two about football. It's not often we get a footballer on the show. That is true. That's true. Footballer of the foot. That's too true. What's your favorite club, William? What's your favorite? What's your club of choice? My favorite club is Roma. Wow. AC Roma. Now that's Italian, isn't it? Yes. (laughs) So I don't think that they joined the Super League, did they? No, they're not big enough. Too so, tiny. Okay. let me explain for a moment what the Super League is, and then we'll talk about how we feel about it. So, um, basically, for those who don't know, the way that uh, European football works is that each country has their own little league. Um, think of it, I don't know. I don't know how you would think of it. <laughs> Every Each country has their own little league. Uh, it's sort of like the divisions that we have in you know the NFL, the NBA. Um, and then um, they come together for what is called the Champions League. So the top four teams in each of these um, national leagues come together and play in the Champions League tournament. Um, but for a number of years, there have been only a few teams that are you know, at the top. These are the richest teams, Liverpool, Manchester United, um, Real Madrid, and uh, a few others. And they were sort of like, hey... We're the biggest teams in this in this Champions League. We're the ones who win all the games. And why do we have to follow their rules? Um, we shouldn't have to do this. We're going to start our own little thing where we can just, you know, share in the wealth and have a great time. Um, think of it for American uh, fans as if the NFL, you know, was like adding a whole bunch of weird rules. And then the Cowboys and the Patriots and the... I don't know, who else would you throw in there? Tampa and Kansas City. They were all like, we're the only teams that matter. Who cares about the Jacksonville Jaguars? Let's get the hell out of here. Who cares about, I don't know, what's another bad one? Tennessee? Irrelevant teams. No, they're Um, cool. No, man, the Titans are kind of... Titans are cool. The Browns are relevant now. Yeah, the Falcons. Falcons. Yeah. Um, And then they got the hell out of there. So this happened. These... um, uh, you know, football club owners announced this, and pretty much every person on earth hated it from the start. There wasn't really anyone who was saying, wow, this is great. I can't wait to see all the best players play each other all the time. Um, no, no one had that take. It was horrible, universally hated, and now it sort of seems like it's not happening anymore. Um, but William, as our chief football correspondent, what is your take on this European Super League disaster? Disaster is the right word. First of all, I just want to say, I don't know why earlier, I accidentally said AC Roma. Obviously, they're my favorite team. I was thinking of AC Milan because they're in the Super League. It's AS Roma. Wow. I misspoke. Wow. I know, I'm, I'm an expert who doesn't even know Stupid. his own favorite teams. But moving on, Super League disaster. Honestly, as you said, almost unanimous hatred 
And it's quite interesting to see, you know, fans of Manchester City and Manchester United or Barcelona and Real Madrid come together, unify in their absolute pure hatred of the Super League. Um, I mean, I think it's god-awful. I'm glad it's seemingly fell through, although um, the chief executive of Real Madrid uh, went on air. You know, hmm? that guy, he's crazy. He's called Perez. That's his last name. Uh, went on air and saying, trying to say that the Super League wasn't dead, even though it pretty much is. Uh, all six Premier League teams are out, and the other teams have suspended operations. And for um, and for so the really, an educated fan, Premier League is like the top teams in the um, in the sorry, English yes. in the Premier English League are the top English teams. Yes. Um, and you kind of hit on this earlier. So there are the five main leagues in Europe uh, across five different countries. So the Premier League in England, Bundesliga in Germany, Bundesliga, Ligue Un, Bundesliga, Ligue 1 in France, Serie A in Italy, and La Liga in Spain. Um, now, there were 12 teams in the Super League, six Premier League teams, Liverpool, Arsenal, Chelsea, Manchester City, Manchester United, and Tottenham. Uh, three Serie A teams, Juventus, ABC Milan, uh, and Inter. And then three La Liga teams, Atletico Madrid, Real Madrid, and Barcelona. Um, it's kind of interesting because really these teams are all bitter rivals. AC Milan and Inter Milan hate each other. Atletico Madrid and Real Madrid, Barcelona and Real Madrid, Manchester City and Manchester United. So to see them all colluding in a sort of, you know, in a Super League goes to show where the real priorities are. And it's purely money. Mm. It has nothing to do with anything other than money and control. Um, And obviously, you know, the fans, they don't want to see that. It's a whole load of crap. They They don't want to see them... Because the really the problem was it's a it was a closed league, which means uh, you know there's no movement really of the teams. Now they said that there would be five teams every year that would come in and out based yeah. on their placement in their domestic league, uh, but really the fixed core of the league would stay the same every year, and nobody wants that. Uh, like domestic leagues, like the Premier League, for example, there's relegation and promotion. So yeah, you know the bottom teams of the Premier League go down a level, uh, and the top teams in the championship which is the second division of english football the top three teams pretty much i mean there's a little tournament thing at the end but top three teams basically go up to, to the premier league uh and same thing with the champions league you know none of the teams are guaranteed every year it's different every year you have to qualify in your domestic league so nobody wants to see a league that's sort of modeled after american sports where the teams are fixed every year and even if you finish bottom of the bin doesn't matter. You're still in. You're still making millions of dollars off of that, you know, the ad revenue. A political point to make, and this is an interesting one, and I'm not, this isn't an original idea. People have been saying this. Um, the American model is sort of a socialist way of doing things. Every team, no matter how bad you are, you still get to compete. Um, you know, you don't get, in, in the European leagues, you actually get penalized for um, not, you know, qualifying for the Champions League. It's a more capitalist system. You know, you have to win to get ahead. Um, it's very strange how American uh, American teams um, and American, you know, business owners 
uh, largely want socialism for themselves, but don't like it in their government. And then in Europe, you know, the capitalist teams and the uh, socialist government. It's interesting. Uh, it was an interesting comparison. But also, another point to make is that some of the biggest and most popular teams in Europe, um, PSG in uh, France, which is uh, Paris Saint-Germain, and uh, Bayern oui. Munich and in uh, Germany, they did not join the Super League. Um, why do you think that is, William? Uh, all right, well, we can start with the easy example, the Bundesliga teams. You know, two Bundesliga teams are obviously missing, Dortmund and Bayern, two of the biggest clubs in the world, you know, on the same level of these other clubs, um, and they're obviously missing. And so everybody, you know, may be thinking, well, why is that? German football actually has a very interesting rule called the 50 plus 1 rule, uh, where fans actually have a majority voting right in the actions of the team. Uh, so, you know, joining the Super League, a Bundesliga, te- a Bundesliga team joining the Super League would be impossible because the fans don't want it and they actually have a voting right in the team's decisions, uh, which obviously, you know, no other country does that with their leagues no american i mean i guess you know the packers kind of have a funny thing going on with their team but no american team or sports league does that so it's certainly very unique and gives the fans a lot of uh you know power in the decision for their favorite clubs which i personally really enjoy Uh, and that's why they were missing psg um you know there were a lot of rumors swirling around people weren't entirely sure some people were thinking they were just waiting until the end of this current Champions League uh, season to join. Uh, others were thinking that maybe they just didn't want to join. Um, you know, honestly, we haven't really heard a lot from them. As far as I'm aware, I have not seen any statements from their, you know, any chief executives or owners or anything like that. Um, where, you know, like uh, Dortmund and Bayern put out a joint statement condemning the Super League. So they were completely against it. I didn't see anything from that. Uh, from PSG, you know, on that level. Um, so, honestly, it's kind of just speculation on the front of PSG as to why they were not included. Now, I have a question, William, for you. Um, clearly, the fan outrage was, was pretty massive. But I was wondering, like, um, was there any backlash or, like, immediate um, outcry from some major footballers on those, on those major teams? Yes, there was, actually. Um, well, mm, on those teams, um... In the Super League. I'm trying to th- I'm, yes, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Um, because I know I read, you know, online a few quotes. Oh, man, I'm trying to remember names here. There were a few players that came out and, you know, directly, like, the day after it was announced, and they were like, yes, this is not what football stands for. Football's for the fans. Football's for the people not the rich and powerful who own everything. Um, but no names stick out to me on teams that were actually in the uh, Super League. They did talk about it after it kind of dissolved. I, I saw some quotes, uh, like Liverpool, for example, I know for sure, they put out a squad joint statement um, after the Super League kind of dissolved, basically saying, you know, we weren't really in on this from the beginning. This was not really our, our thing. Um, we, we want football to be the way it's been for, you know, for the fans. Um, but, you know, high-profile players, you know, ob- like, you know, the ones that come to mind right away, Messi, Ronaldo, Neymar. I mean, I guess Neymar is, you know, PSG, but he could still speak out against it. Um, nothing from them. 
which honestly wow. doesn't surprise me. I would not expect, you know, like Messi or Ronaldo to be speaking out against this, to be honest. But Ronaldo's all about the money. Ronaldo's about the money. And Messi's quite quiet, honestly, you know, to the media. He doesn't really talk a whole lot. Quiet guy. A um, hmm. couple more things. There were some um, interesting... Uh, there's an interesting New England sports connection here. I know a lot of mm-hmm. our listeners are from New England. William Schechter, he's a big... New England sports fan. Um, John Henry, who is the owner of the Red Sox, the owner of the Fenway Sports Group, is also an owner of Liverpool. Um, and Liverpool was one of these uh, teams. Um, John Henry is coming off of a weird stretch here where he was the guy who was like, yeah, let's trade our generational superstar just for shits and giggles. Um, what's the, you know, I don't want to pay him. You know, I'm, one of, I'm the second richest team in in MLB and I'm going to trade Mookie Betts away just because I'm afraid of paying him. Um, and now John Henry finds himself in this situation again where he's upset all of the Liverpool fans. Um, what do you think kind of blowback is going to happen for him, um, you know, either with the European fans or, um, you know, it seems like John Henry's not, you know, he's in a rough patch, rough patch right now. Yes, I certainly agree. I mean, you know, Red Sox fans, as one myself, can be fickle, to say the least. Um, And, you know, if you don't do what we want, we're not afraid to tell you. Can I swear on this? Yes. Then we're not afraid to tell you to fuck off. (laughs) Um, So honestly, I mean, like, yeah, you know, you talk about Mookie and getting rid of... An outfield that, uh, you know, oh, man, this, this, this really frustrates me. I know it's a little bit of a tangent, but, you know, Benintendi and JBJ, an outfield that was loaded. I mean, gosh, one of the greatest outfields out there, especially defensively. I mean, geez. Yeah. And letting all three of them go. It's like trading Jason Tatum, Jalen oh. Brown, and Marcus Smart just because you feel like you don't want to pay for them anymore. I've, I've talked about this in great length with, uh, with like, my dad. And I certainly not happy with Red Sox ownership. You know, we win the World Series in 2018, and then they're like, all right, we just care about money. <laughs> we don't want to pay people. We just want let's money. burn it all down. I mean, they're and good think, right now. You know, but True. Um, but I do think this connects to the Super League and Liverpool because it just goes to show, um, you know, the type of people – that are in this owning class and that own are rich enough to own sports teams, what their priorities are. Yeah. Again, and like I said earlier, their priorities is one thing really, and it's money. And I don't think that comes as a, I mean, that doesn't come as a surprise to anybody. It's not like me saying that is shocking. Um, you know, you guys are multi billionaires and the leaders of sports groups that are, you know, if you combine the wealth of or the. Uh, value of Liverpool and the Red Sox. I, mean, I don't know numbers off the top of my head, but I'm willing to bet it's close to the ten billion dollars. Probably something around that. Yeah. Um. You know. They only want to see that go up more. Yeah. But that's it. Crazy stuff. And oh, and you sorry, and you said talk about backlash. As for backlash on the front of Liverpool, I know that obviously you know every fan group or fan base has been uh, very upset. But certainly Liverpool, it almost seems like more than anyone else because Liverpool is supposed to be the fans' team. Yeah. Ever since they were founded. They'll like never walk alone, all club. that stuff. Exactly. They're the club of the people. Um, so I certainly think them, specifically of all teams, for them to see this happen 
really has to upset them. Now, will anything happen? I mean, like, you know, is he going to have to sell the team or something like that? Or is, you know, Fenway Sports Group going to have to sell a stake in the team? Are they going to burn down think- Liverpool? Who knows? I don't think so. Will fans be it. upset still at him, though? Certainly. Certainly. Um, the One of the funniest things to come out of this is that... Um, so, UEFA and FIFA, they... Um, FIFA, obviously, everyone knows. FIFA World Cup, they run the national teams. And UEFA runs the Champions League. Um, these uh, leagues were sort of, you know, in the United States, how we view Roger Goodell. We hate, you know, Roger Goodell. We think that he's an idiot. I think European fans think that FIFA and UEFA are idiots. But now that the European Super League happened, um, you know, everyone's like, you know, the UEFA seems like this little cuddly, you know, nice thing in comparison to the European Super League. And they've earned a little bit of good um, credit from this. Um, Do you expect rule changes to happen in UEFA now? Mm. Because... When all of these European Super League teams left, um, they left UEFA, you know, the governing board that decides rules of stuff. Um, do you think that there was going to be a big change in football after this commercialist um, endeavor that'll change, you know, the direction of football? Because the European Super League didn't happen in a vacuum. It was something that was going to happen, you know, whether or not it happened, uh, you know, this week. Um do you foresee a, a sea change in football to becoming a more populist endeavor? Um, hmm. Well, first of all, a little side note. I think you hit on a really good point, actually, where um, UEFA, especially FIFA, FIFA is pretty much hated by everybody because they're corrupt. Yeah. And UEFA, honestly, True. people don't really like the governing body of UEFA much either. They certainly came out winning from the Super League. They got a lot of good faith. And they got people on their side simply because they're not the Super League. So, little side note right there. But do I think that um, rule changes and, you know, will it become more populist? Well, I think it's interesting to bring that up because, um, you know, right now, actually, the UEFA body, pretty much at the same time uh, as the Super League was kind of starting to go up and down the roller coaster. Um, they passed a rule change, a major rule change for the Champions League, um, where instead of at the beginning of the tournament, um, the teams that qualify being divided into four team groups and then playing you know a group stage, where basically for anybody who doesn't know, um, all of the teams play each other twice in the Champions League, and the teams with the most points, you get three points for a win, one for a tie, zero for a loss. Uh, the, te- the two teams at the top of the group with the most points will go on to the knockout stage. Um, they're doing away with this group stage format entirely and going to an entirely new format um, where they're expanding the field of teams from 32 to 36. Um, and they're actually going to divide, they're going to have a, an entire table, 36 teams. They're going to play 10 games, a kind of 10 game micro season. And, and they say they have a way of making it so that the teams play a fair share of like, you know, some top teams, some lower level teams. They play some domestic games. They play some games far away from home. Um, And at the end of this 10 game kind of micro season, um, the top 10 teams automatically qualify for the knockout stage. And then they take the next, um, sorry, it's kind of hard to explain without a visual, but basically they take teams 11, 
so the first team to not make automatic qualification, um, and I believe it's what twenty two, or no, all basically they have a little mini play in tournament where they seed all the teams, um, and so half of them go through to make up the rest of the teams uh, in the knockout stage, and half of them you know go home and lose. Um, but basically, you know, long story short, this. Uh, is a major shakeup to the format of how the Champions League is played. And people are obviously very critical of it because um, UEFA themselves have come out to say there are more games under this format being played, which will generate more revenue. And so people are saying, well, you're no better than the Super League. You just want this new format so you can play more games and get more ad revenue, oh, um, no. which I think is a fair, I think is a fair criticism. Um, I don't think... You know, coming out of the Super League, I don't think that the Champions League or UEFA is all of a sudden going to become this body that's, like, for the people. I still think it's going to be greedy. I still think they're pretty much going to play by the same rules as the Super League, where their one motivating factor is money. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't see a major shakeup in that area, especially with this new rule, you know. Which, honestly, I'm not a major... I'm kind of in the middle. I do love the group stage format. I think it's classic, you know, it's how it's always been done, really. I, 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 it's very fun. I won't lie, I'm kind of interested to see how this new format will work. It sounds kind of interesting with a little play-in tournament before the knockout stage, and then you go to the knockout stage like normal. So I guess we'll just have to see. That's set to be implemented in 2024. Oh, wow. Wow. So, yes. It's a long way Will that potentially road. mean there's more opportunities for, like, smaller teams who don't quite yes, make it that to is, weasel their so, way yes. in? So, less the, that. They haven't, as far as I've seen, they haven't released exactly how um, the qualification will work with the expanded field. But, you know, like right now, kind of like what Brian was saying earlier, um, some of the top leagues, they send four teams, like England, they sent four. Um, Not all of them. France only sends two because they're deemed not as good or not as big of a market, which they aren't. I mean, we'll be real. Um, But then, you know, there are much smaller leagues, like leagues in, in, you know, whatever. Austria or the Netherlands, they only send one team because huh. really there's only one team that's going to be competing even close to that level or will generate enough fanfare for you know them to make it on that stage. Um, so it might make more room for small teams or they may just expand it for more you know large clubs. Uh, and so again, kind of hits like, are they even any better than the Super League? Right. Let's throw in some American teams here. Just create an American super team. That's what I was wondering, like, with my yeah. very uneducated mind, when you mentioned, like, there's a New England sports connection. I was like, oh, boy, let's send the revolution over there and see what they can do. I imagine they'd probably they get suck. crushed just from what <laughs> I know get, about they footballing. They'd blow up. Put, it wouldn't even be close. Yeah. I think the U.S. women's national team would share better in the in the Champions League than the than any they probably American. blow them up yeah i'd be willing to bet that they'd both lose but they'd definitely do better than the revolution would i i mean what i said it no it's They're true some of the best clubs in the world with the best you know best footballers in the world I mean, can't spend like the 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 portland timber dogs guys no man any mls team would get hammered by any champions League even team. the galaxy even a lower one yes Oh, wow! Yes. Oh my gosh! Oh my! Not because it's not only like skill; it's also style of play. Yeah. Like 
American soccer sucks. Is, it <laughs> sucks. The American style of play sucks. And obviously wow. European, like, honestly, different leagues have different styles. Uh, like, the Bundesliga traditionally is a very Bundesliga. Nice, kind of stereotypical, stereotypical, like, German engineering. But Bundesliga typically is very technical-based. It's very, you know, like, passing. Yeah, yeah, Making yeah. a lot of connected passes. Uh, whereas, Precision. for example, maybe, like, La Liga, yeah. less or so is passing is more like maybe, you know, physical skill. Crazy Who, shit. Are you faster and stronger than the other guy? How hard of a punch can you throw? That's exactly. kind of what's How about. How hard can you headbutt somebody? That's How what, long that's will it take you to choke someone out? It's just kind of... Exactly. They should allow oh, a gun to if it's Suarez. Bring a gun onto the field. Onto the pitch. Bring a gun <laughs> onto the pitch. Oh, jeez. And I like how the European Super League guys were like, and we will also have a women's league soon to be <laughs> planned out. They were like, yeah, we'll also include the women at some point. We'll do that. <laughs> Eventually. 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 They can have a we got, uh, we got we got Kristen Press and Tobin Heath over there on, on Chelsea right now. You know, mm-hmm. you can't just let them right away. You gotta get no, them, no, no. Gotta get them somewhere. Um, You're darn right. No. Well, I think also to come out of this, I think a lot of Americans have been talking about soccer or football, um, and, you know, maybe now there will be a a little more interest in the Champions League and the Premier League, which um, you can find streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Yeah! (laughs) I was trying to figure out, how do I watch soccer? And it was like, you can buy Paramount+, Plus. you can buy Peacock. These are not on terrestrial television. NBC Universal. Um, Cock. I let's see where where do I usually watch? Well, champ like the Champions League, um, like you know the later stage games. They're they're BBC. usually broadcasted on on bigger, CBS, on bigger channel. Um, but yeah, sadly, CBS, baby. you know, if I want to watch smaller games, especially if like if I want to watch Roma, yeah. You gotta go on a streaming. They're not even. I mean, like in the U.S., you can't, you can't find that. So it's just not quite. You know, it's not there. I'm gonna have to I guess the only solution can. is move to Italy. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I'll have to move to Rome one day. Fine. Ooh, the Colosseum. <laughs> Let's go. Wow. Well, to say the least, this was greatly enlightening. But I went from knowing very little about soccer to knowing slightly more. To more than I ever Good. wanted to know. <laughs> Fair enough. My knowledge is intimate. Ever you, you like the Orlando the Pride, right? Ever's a big sure. Orlando Pride guy. The Orlando Columbus Pride crew. FC. The Columbus Crew. Isn't it like <laughs> the Chicago Fire? Aren't the Chicago team? Fire, Columbus Crew. The New York Red Bull. New York. New York. Go New York Red Bull. And Honestly, Kraft I can't. Owns. I love the Boston Uprising. I couldn't care less <laughs> about the uh, about the MLS. You know. Wow. Honestly, I think John Henry I mean, should move Liverpool to Boston. Wow. Oh, and call it Boston. I'm sure. I'm sure <laughs> the fans over there in England would love that. They lot. would. I mean, they love. They Boston. wouldn't. They, would love they wouldn't have a choice. It would be at Fenway Park. <laughs> they oh, just an eight minute. Soccer's walk. back at Fenway, guys. Who needs Anfield when you can play at Fenway? Yeah. Exactly. Who cares about tradition? We're all about the money. Not me. Oh yeah. Well, thank you, William Schechter, for making a, a, a thank taking you. time out of your day to make an appearance on our 
a horrible show. My pleasure. It was very fun. Always fun to talk about soccer or football. Football. For the, those that enlightened among us. Among us. <laughs> Wait a minute. Among us. For the, the enlightened among us. Wow. Did he just say among us? Had, he had did say among us. I'm a, I'm a funny guy. Fungus Ooh. among us. <laughs> wow. There's a fungus among us. Yes. Great. Okay, guys. This is getting a little sus. Yes. All right. It's getting a little bit sus. I might want to get out of here. William, why don't you vent out, out of here before this gets too I'm suspect? If oh you ever God. want more soccer expertise... I say expertise with very large quotation marks, and you know who to call. Yes. Brian will come a-calling. Oh, good. In the middle of the night. do it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I'll be answering. (laughs) Thank goodness. 3 a.m. All right, we're back with our main segment today, talking about the climate crisis and everything that's happened in this week um, with Joe Biden. Um, So, Joe Biden has... um, you know, he made this sort of lofty goal to cut emissions in half um, from their 2005 levels by 2030. So what would this actually look like? Um, so reading here from the New York Times, uh, those studies suggest more than half of the new cars and SUVs sold at dealerships would need to be powered by electricity, not gasoline. Nearly all coal-fired power plants would need to be shut down forests would need to expand, and the number of wind turbines and solar panels dotting the nation's landscape would have to quadruple. Wow. When the government makes an intention like this for, like, a lofty goal without any, like, real steps to do so, I don't understand why we applaud them. We can get into that later, but, um, Everett, I understand that you have some quotes here. Yeah, I mean, take them out. Joe Biden, again, has called this, he's called it a moonshot. He said that it's a moral imperative and an economic imperative. He also said that in this moment of peril, uh, or rather it serves as a moment of peril, but it's also a moment of extraordinary possibility. Um, and as we mentioned previously in our news segments, I guess with Afghanistan, Joe Biden has kind of taken a uh, the buck stops here mentality with a lot of bigger issues um, that, as we have been saying, have sort of been passed along through the ages where you might have some presidents who start recognizing it. Um, but uh, the President Biden has kind of taken a, a definitely a now is now is action time on a lot of deals. Um, and I don't know, this day was exciting for me. There was a lot of good news um, when he was talking about, I believe there's also now an American Families Plan. He talked about returning the wealth the highest brackets of the tax system back to where they were before the tax cut, which again, with a lot of Biden's policy, isn't a huge step, but it's easier for Republicans to call it radical, even though it's just going back to the way it was in 2016. Um, there or, was, the, or the way it was during Bill Clinton, actually. Right. That the, the Obama tax rate was actually a little lower. Than yes. That, um, and then that Biden's is astronomically problem. lower than how it was several decades ago. Which with Richard Nixon exactly, which is really pretty strange um, to think about. Tricky dick. And it was also exciting, I guess, because today I, I don't know what to say about it because I don't know if it's happened yet. But I believe the president um, is meant to make some sort of declaration about the Armenian genocide, recognizing that. Um, 
Yeah, I believe that happened moments ago when we were recording. Yes, uh, and uh, and a few other things. But I, I mean, this is exciting. I understand you probably have some things to say about policy. Um, I'm not sure how this will do, be divided up into a bill, um, but it's it's mm-hmm. extremely. As you were reading the New York Times and other news outlets, they were very clear to say that this would be extremely difficult, which it would be. But mm-hmm. President Biden, you know, he has his big portrait above the fireplace in the Oval Office is of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And I feel like he's taken on this mentality that, OK, we're going to have a new New Deal. Um, one could even say a green New Deal. But, um, yeah, it's a big goal. But we also know um, that it is a necessary action. And I feel like just just to start from like one thing I've noticed is that a lot of uh, automobile man- manufacturers, you know, we start in California where they start changing their emissions laws and car companies are obliged uh, or are, are obliging to change their policy and their design. Um, but there's also a lot of automobile companies that are very much moving towards this kind of business. Um, we have like, for example, the new Hummer, just one example is all electric. Um, and I believe several car companies uh, have promised actually to move to all electric within uh, a few decades or less. Um, so there is a willingness from American business and from international business to do this. Firstly, I, and I think if you want to talk about just co- uh, you know profit being one thing, it's cost effective to do this because if they don't, then there won't be any business. So, so a lot of American businesses are already willing to do this. Um, so that's exciting, I suppose. Um, not to be all doom and gloom, but this is the sort of situ- sort of government thing I don't necessarily like. Um, when they just sort of say, "Okay, we're going to cut emissions in half in two thousand five levels by twenty thirty what does that actually mean you know it's the similar it's the same thing as um campaign promises like joe biden had all these sorts of things in his um um, campaign about the climate all these different plans he was going to do but not necessarily like here is exactly how i plan to do this here is what was going to happen we're going to do carbon pricing i mean a carbon tax we're going to do um, this sort of thing, we're going to, you know, uh, give subsidies to the renewable energy um, industry. Um, those things are often floated, but nothing ever actually, you know, is set in stone when they um, come out with a declaration like this. And I think it's hard for people to get along with it, um, you know, when it's not necessarily anything concrete, especially, you know, the Green New Deal everyone attacked it as from the right attacked it as this radical plan but if you actually read the green new deal it's the green new deal resolution it's not actually a framework it's not I mean it is a, it's a framework but it's not actually anything policy right but rather initiative. that's all it is. it is it's just a framework it's only 14 pages long and it's it's yeah. a it's as a resolution is it's a declaration of whomever votes for it from Congress that this is the policy yeah. shift we're going to make. It doesn't say necessarily yeah. how they're going to do it. It just says that they want to. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think I think they we've get, <laughs> um, the American government has had all this time knowing that the climate crisis is an issue, 
to develop um, plans and develop policy points of how they're going to deal with this. Um, but it's hard to sort of say. Um, uh, a lot of the things I have notes here about are will the average American go along with this? I think it's hard to say um, if they will without any actual, you know, steps that they're going to take. You know, when we sort of make a declaration that we're going to do this, um, okay, but what does that mean for me? You know, what does that mean for the average American? Do they have to, will we have to change our diets? Will we have to, you know, cut down on plane travel? Will we have to do these sorts of things? How is this going to change my life? Um, and when you don't state what you're going to actually do, it leaves the door open for the media and for people who are against this sort of thing to sort of invent whatever sort of policy they want to based off of this vague and um, lofty goal. Yeah. There was going to be some sort of radical, um, you know, crackdown on... Um, uh, beef or something, you know. Right, it and, it, and it, it leaves it open to interpretation. To say how far it's over and over. Yeah, and in a sort of C.J. Craig way, it means that the government doesn't control the narrative. Um, yes. Or rather, the executive doesn't control the narrative, and mm-hmm. it would have certainly been more effective if during this summit or after or before the mm-hmm. White House was like, "Okay, here are our goals," and then also. Here's like three bills that we've already written up that yeah. we'd like Congress to adopt. Um, here's the American climate plan. <laughs> right. Like here's the modern, you know, clean blank act. Here's our yeah. grid diversification act. Um, yeah. That would be great. And I think... And maybe, that, maybe that'll be in the American jobs plan. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, that's possible. And I, as an infrastructure bill... One thing I've noticed um, is that it seems like, especially with midterms sort of coming along, uh, Democrats and Joe Biden as the leader now of the Democratic Party are sort of positioning themselves to try and get their most important but also their most reasonably bipartisan work through first. Now, Mm -hmm. with the American Rescue Plan, you had no Republicans voting for it. Um, even though that was the most important thing they had. And now we're moving on to what is typically a very much bipartisan action, um, something that it's easy for most Congress people to get behind because everyone at home in their district is going to like it. If you say we're going to fix your roads, most people are quite happy about that. If you say we're going to improve your Internet, you know, that's a step in the digital age. But I feel like without partisan uh, dealing and trying to set up the situation as Democrats are trying to do blank, and re- and then from the other side, Republicans are trying to deprive you of blank. Um, it it doesn't. It's not tangible for voters. Um, yeah. And if you can't prove that this is important, you and I here can say we. We know it's important and the government can say or Joe Biden can say we as the White House know this is important and we need it. But if you can't prove to people why it's important, then no one will – very few will care. 
Um, and that yeah. sort of relies but upon delivering and passing a bill and signing it. Um, yeah. Joe Biden has been pretty good so far in his administration telling the American people, here's what I'm doing, here's how it's going to affect you. And I think that a lot of his political career, he's been a sort of salesman for government plans. Here's how this affects you. Here's what this will do to you. He's, you know, he's Scranton Joe. He can right. talk to people. And that certainly um, was his job. in this job, situation, he right. hasn't done that. And that definitely was his job as vice president. He was, okay, mm-hmm. oh, President Obama said... Okay, Joe, we've we've done our initial restructuring that we can do as the executive branch. You are now in charge of working on our stimulus package and selling it to the American people. And right now, in a similar way, that is sort of Vice President Kamala Harris's job. She is on a tour. She's always going to I believe yesterday she was in New Hampshire um with with her husband she's she's going to swing states she's right her job is to get out to places where people will notice and sell the not sell but to show yeah. how the american rescue plan is helping um encourage people Harris to take the vaccine go go to vaccine clinics go to go to hospitals yeah. But also go to like businesses yeah. and restaurants, and that's yeah. sort of her job right now is is sell the stimulus plan. Um, when when Kamala is on your on your local news while you're eating your Cheerios, it's much better than you know hearing um, Hoda Hoda Copy tell you what the Biden administration is planning to do. Versus you know, hi, I'm Kamala. Uh, today I'm in, in New Hampshire. Here's what we're planning on doing with the American Jobs Plan. You know, right. And um, I mean, that that is the highest level of government doing it. But it's also to me, I feel like that is the best thing they can do. That's the most effective way to get out there and be engaged. And I believe we talked about before and I won't go far on this tangent, but like the problem with the end of the Obama presidency and especially during the initial reconstruction after the 2008, 2009 recession was, well, let's come up with our 20 step plans and our projects and let's make sure that it's as seamless as possible and no one has to see it. It's just like, let's restructure things. Um, We'll have to make a lot of compromises, but that's okay. And then there was no effort other than Joe Biden being in charge of trying to wrangle, you know, herd the cats in Congress to get people to vote the right way. Um, There was no real effort with a lot of the Obama administration's major policy proposals and accepted, you know, actual bills that went into law um, to actually show people you know, here we are. This is what we did. You're welcome. Um, does that mean, you know, in, in a sense, you can't go around in a democracy where your government, if, if we believe that the blue team is right, um, is up every few years. You can't go around doing things without publicizing them. I mean, it's unfortunate, but you know, you have, you have to show, I, that's the most important thing in government. Even if it's all, it shouldn't be just like a show. It's like, we want there to be substantial change and here's how we're going to do it. And then if you Mm -hmm. do that, as it happens, I believe it's more likely that you'll win another election. So that should be the focus is doing things which are highly visible, but also very simple. Um, some, okay, so a few points here about how I think that the Biden administration can effectively lobby for climate, um, action. Um, the first being, I think, extreme weather incidents, just sort of saying, 
you know, a lot of people say that the reason we can't get off the ground with climate change um, action is that people perceive it as something that will happen in 30 or 40 years. Right. You know, while the worst uh, uh, potential um, side effects of the climate crisis may only happen in a few decades, um, it's already here, as we've seen in Texas, as we've seen with Hurricane Maria, Hurricane Sandy, um, wildfires in California. Um, everybody has, you know, something that has happened near them that they can say, hey, you know, that was strange that we had that hurricane and then that other hurricane and that other hurricane and then, you know, that other unprecedented wildfire and then another unprecedented wildfire and then another unprecedented wildfire. Right. You can only um, have so many storms of the century yeah. um, before the important thing is that you need to be saying, which scientists have been saying forever, you know, the past decades, is that climate change and global warming will mean that a, a change in climate will become increasingly uh, major Volatile. storm events will become more intense and more frequent. But also it means that climate as we understand it will, is likely to change um, in certain regions. Yeah. Drier areas could become drier or it could mean that precipitation patterns move and areas which are used to lots of precipitation get considerably less and those which aren't start getting inundated. Um, and that's the difference, yeah. especially at the coastlines where you need to say like Miami and uh, I don't know, Houston, New Orleans especially, are already having to grapple and have for two decades with what do we do about first an increasing sea level, but also bigger storms that keep happening more often, which have much larger storm surges. Um, it's like, what what can we do? And the answer is you point out that the culprit uh, almost always is climate change. I think you could do a sort of thing where, um, like these Kamala Harris visits on local news, you could do, you know, like today, Kamala is hanging out with, not hanging out with, Kamala is doing an event with your local senator and your local representative and we're going to talk about hurricane sandy and we're going to explain to you that hurricane sandy was a product of climate change and that this legislation you should um lobby for your congressman to support it because um you know it will prevent these sorts of things from happening all the time right you could say yeah and the very and unfortunate sort of yeah thing is i feel like in these areas which have had to deal with a number of disasters in a row. Take New Orleans, for example, after Hurricane Katrina. As, as most people are pretty well aware, um, FEMA did an absolutely horrible job, and the Bush administration did very poorly with actually going in timely and making sure that people were first rescued and then that the rebuilding process was effective and, and equitable. It wasn't, and... People there now probably don't feel like government wants to or will help them oh, with these yeah. climate issues. But if you have this sort of um, in your backyard right. messaging, that's what needs to happen. Then that'll get people along with it. And I think that the second point of where this could be effective is um, an economic opportunity sense. I think we've already seen this happen with the labeling of the infrastructure plan as the America jobs plan, um, sort of viewing infrastructure through a prism of, um, 
this will bring a lot of economic opportunity. And I think you have several of these sorts of things within climate change or addressing climate change, um, whether that's renewable energies, uh, sustainable food production practices, modernizing infrastructure. Um, all of these present an opportunity to win over skeptics by saying, hey, if we you know, address climate change in this bill, this will create X amount of jobs and will also help the planet. I think you've already seen this messaging start to come out, and I think that um, that would be an effective way of getting people on board. Yeah, um, and I, I right agree now, because that's oh. sort of the most important. That's a major selling point. It was for the initial Green New Deal launch, and it is now, again, for the relaunch. Same people, Ed Markey mm -hmm. and um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, but the, the deal is that you, I, I imagine, uh, many concerned people will say, well, if you're going to get rid of these massive industries like um, fossil fuels and uh, all the industries which fall below that, so the petrochemical agriculture sector and, and trucking and transportation and automobile manufacturing, all these people who have all these jobs, the selling point needs to be, and it has been, but you need to really drive home that the, the answer to this looming problem where we know that we're going to run out of petroleum, but also the amount of fossil fuels we're burning is, is, is ruining our climate and destroying our biodiversity and our forests and everything, um, is that the solution is not to destroy these jobs and put millions of people out of work, but rather to adapt those jobs into something that is, is green. We are going to take what we're doing now and make it more effective and improve our grid. And in doing that, we aren't only creating new jobs, but we're also creating better, higher paying jobs in cleaner industries, right? That's, that's the big old difference. Um, so I've been critical in this segment about, um, you know, not necessarily having actions. Um, actions speak louder than words, but I think that's that right. um, the climate summit that's happening right now is an example of um, taking action. And um, Biden right now is trying to bring together world leaders and business leaders to um, yeah, discuss solutions for climate change and get everyone on board. And I think um, an interesting part of this is climate diplomacy. Um, you've had the, I don't, know, I don't know if it was Secretary of State, but somebody within the State Department was saying that the United States is shifting its foreign policy to be, um, you know, considering climate change with their every move. Um, an example that we have of this is, um, you know, Brazil, okay? This is a country with a somewhat authoritarian leader in, um, I think it's Herr Bolsonaro. You think I'm pronouncing that right? Ayer, I believe. Oh, Ayer Bolsonaro. Um, he is the president of, of Brazil. And he has been, um, basically for a little while, turning a blind eye to um, what's happening in the Amazon rainforest. Right, yeah. No, you're certainly right. I mean, I, I don't, I'm, I'm no expert in it, but in a lot of my classes, I remember in high school, but also now, we talk a lot about, uh, Bolsonaro is sort of compared sometimes to Trump in that he's sort of denied COVID-19's existence, and then he caught it himself, and he's also sort of a climate denier. But from what I understand, the Brazilian government has a large apparatus for um, dealing with climate change and handling how the rainforests are 
are used and developed and also in interacting with indigenous tribes in West Brazil. But the administration and the Brazilian government, their policy has kind of been not to rescind or repeal any laws so much as to just not enforce them and to just have mm -hmm. federal agencies in Brazil just, again, stop enforcing them and allow businesses and loggers and um, and ranchers to, to burn forests without proper permits or um, to in, in interfere with indigenous lands or to, again, the, the burn swaths of land without proper permitting um, because ranching is a huge industry in Brazil that continues to grow um, and it's sort of based, the, the scheme of growth is sort of based upon just increasing the amount of land that they have available. Um, and the current government sympathy has been, sure, our, rainfor our rainforests are an important resource, so why don't we use them? And their answer to that is just to stop enforcing environmental law. Um, so I use Bolsonaro, um, President Bolsonaro's new um, thing is that he is saying that he will crack down on um, the illegal deforestation in the Amazon and he will, you know, um, become a, a more friendlier to climate change president. Um, but he is asking for humanitarian aid to do this. Um, we talked in an earlier segment about humanitarian aid. Um, it's difficult to parse exactly what it goes to, but I think you could say that it's sort of an extortion scheme that uh, Bolsonaro was saying, sure, we'll stop burning the Amazon if you pay me to do it. Um, are the United States and the European Union uh, just dumb enough to uh, fall for it and give Bolsonaro um, the money that he is requesting to stop uh, burning the Amazon? Do you think that they'll do this and do you think it's smart to do it? Um, this is very different for me from Afghanistan, and I should hope that leaders in the United States and the European Union don't um, concede or, or fall to any such uh, deal if the humanitarian aid is just going directly to the Brazilian government. Um, there are a lot of Brazilians and other international organizations which have been working very hard um, to protect resources in the rainforest, as well as indigenous tribes that are protecting their own land in the Brazilian judicial system. Um, but... I should hope that certainly does read to me as an extortion scheme. Um, it's just, we will do what you want, uh, the global north, if, but so long as you pay us. When we understand that the Brazilian government hasn't changed any laws and really just needs to have a internal policy shift to where climate and rainforest protection just becomes important again. Um, I don't know... Firstly, I think it is, there's a question of whether or not there's a global responsibility there. And I think reasonably, this isn't so much about business or about conflict. It, it is a global responsibility, firstly, for Latin American countries, because it's their interest, but also for the rest of the world, because the rainforests are, as people say so often, they are the, the lungs of the earth. Um, it's one of the most important carbon sinks and oxygen producers that we have. Um, and yeah, uh, to me, I, I, I should hope, let me just say, that they don't make such a deal. Yeah, I think it's something like 20% of the, um, um, I don't know, what, what would you say? Global carbon of, sequestration. I mean, yeah, yeah. and that sounds comparatively Amazon. small, but we're talking about a, a major, the essentially internal part of an entire continent. Um, 
So yeah, extremely important. One fi- one fifth of the of the whole world's um, carbon sequestration, as you said. Um, I had one more point that I wanted to go to, and I'll get it quickly before um, we wrap up. This will be the final point. Um, cryptocurrency. Right. Uh, it consumes more electricity right now um, than countries like Argentina. Crypto puts out 36.95 megatons of CO2 each year. This is the same output of uh, New Zealand. This is information from the Sierra Club. Um, everything from Dogecoin, Bitcoin, NFTs, these have an incredibly large ener- energy consumption and an incredibly large um, CO2 output. So as crypto transitions from somewhat of a meme or a fad into a viable financial institution, uh, the window for intervention could be slipping for the government. Do you think that President Biden should go after crypto's environmental impact? And do you think that um, it's something that needs to be addressed? Yes, absolutely. Um, <laughs> just from what yes. I'm seeing, it's just it doesn't. Dogecoin started as a meme, right? But you have uh, mass billionaires like Elon Musk who are like, okay, I'm going to invest hundreds of millions of dollars into this to legitimize it and in hopes that the the prices of these cryptocurrencies and um, go up and that things like non-fungible tokens are legitimized. Um, but mm-hmm. we know just from like videos of people who are actually doing it, you see huge um, you know containers of just rows and rows of computers um, constantly doing the the mining where they're they're doing simple simple calculations to try and guess numbers that that's the mining mm-hmm. for a bitcoin for example and it's extremely um energy intensive um since it's a made-up currency uh and the government kind of has the authority to regulate currency um it sort of makes sense even though not that kind of currency it makes sense to me since it says has such a huge and essentially unimportant non-essential interest and but such Mm -hmm. a disproportionately large impact on the environment that it should be a part of the Biden administration's work um you just go for it right away i don't know how you begin regulating it or if it's regulated now by like the ftc or something um yeah I, i think people say that um the people who are behind crypto are also trying to um clamp down on this environmental impact but I think that the federal government should not allow them to self-regulate and basically um, just control whether or not um, you know they put out this amount of um, energy uh, or they take in this amount of energy. Right. I feel um, like just I like any business, yeah. no one, especially like small businesses, no one is doing that to destroy the environment. But um, yeah, they're also doing it, knowing just trying to you know push out a profit out of something of extremely niche market, which they made up. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it needs to be regulated. All right, Everett. I think that's, that's all we have for the, uh, climate, um, uh, uh about Biden's climate agenda. Um, that's, that's all for our episode. No bozo this week. We had a no lot of other bozo. stuff to talk about. No bozo. Um, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed. Um, see you on the next one. Everett, you have any final messages? Hey, have a great week. Stay, stay epic. All right. You have a good one. All right.